Welcome once again to the So Weird Podcast. I'm Zach. I'm Kat. I'm Emily. I'm Kathy. I'm Melissa. Tonight we have a very special episode of the So Weird Podcast. We are interviewing a man whose name has come up on the show maybe more than anybody else on this podcast. He was a head writer and a showrunner on the topic of this podcast, So Weird, and he worked on the music and a lot of other things involved with the show, and you probably already know who I'm talking about. That is, of course, Mr. John Cooksey. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. I'll ask the first question, which is, how did you first become involved with the Disney Channel and So Weird? Uh, we had worked, uh, we were at the time working on Rugrats, my wife, Allie, and I, and uh, <clears throat> we had written one episode of Twilight Zone, I think it was, or, uh, or it was Outer Limits. I can't remember which one. I guess it was Outer Limits, and um, based on one of uh, uh, my wife's dad's stories. Um, and uh, so that gave us a really strange resume that we wrote for this animated show that was sort of for everybody from toddlers to stone to college students to parents. <laughs> and, um, and then we had also written the scary stuff, which was kind of what I grew up on. I grew up on paranormal stuff and H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe and all that. And um, there was an exec at Disney. They had started the pilot so weird already. They had done it by the time they contacted us, I think. And uh, they'd gone to a writer named Tom Astle, who is great and a great guy. And um, he had written a pilot and originally they really wanted it to be kind of light and fluffy, more like they were going in the direction of kind of even Stevens and, and shows like that. And uh, the original ending of So Weird, uh, according to the exec who hired us was, um, his name is Lee Gaither, who is still a friend of mine, was that uh, if you remember the pilot, the at the end, uh, uh, Molly and Fee go to the grave and they kind of look down sadly at this little uh, kid who's been reunited with his parents. And in the original script, the kid's ghost rose out of the grave and gave a Fee a peck on the cheek. Oh. So it was quite uh, cute. <laughs> and, um, and Lee Gaither, whom they had hired to oversee the show, uh, his description of it said, yeah, I'm taking Tom Astle, we'll be back in a month. And he took Tom Astle away, and when he brought it back, it was dark. And and uh, the ending was dark, and it was, I, I don't remember if Lee added it or, or it was there all along, but the fact that Fee's daughter, da uh, father had died um, was a pretty dark element for, for So Weird. And um, they shot the pilot, and Tom had to go work on some ABC show, so he left. And they brought it to us. And we really hadn't thought about working for the Disney Channel. And they sent us this pilot. And it was really dark and deep and interesting. And it was funny also. But it was just that was the darkness of it was what kind of took us off guard. And we were like, wow, OK, um, this is amazing. And so we uh, uh, were going to write it out of Los Angeles. And it was going to be shot in Vancouver for the usual reasons, economic uh, and also incredibly gloomy, which was working for X-Files. Uh, and then they changed their their uh, mind at the last minute and um, moved us up there. And uh, we moved to Vancouver that way. My daughter, Mariel, is actually sitting right in behind me here. She was five at the time. And uh, so we moved up to Vancouver for three months and stayed for 17 years. And that's how we got involved. 
Just one follow-up question there, Tom. You say you're a big Lovecraft fan, so am I. Was there ever a so weird Lovecraft pitch at any point in the show's production? Uh, probably the the. I mean, we I don't remember if we really went that far down the road. The probably the creepiest, weirdest pitch was the was the only one they ever turned down, which was called Chrysalis. Mm -hmm. um, which I, I think people, some people know about because I've talked about it or I've, you know, I've shown people online, I think. Um, and Chrysalis was really following up on Molly's alcoholism, which was something that was sort of implied in the pilot. And, and then I built it more into the series along with the whole uh, witch's kind of backstory. And um, yeah. Chrysalis was the one that, that uh, built that uh, Carrie, Clue's older brother, was actually an alcoholic too. And... Um, and they ended up with some creature growing inside his belly or something. So that's about the most Lovecraftian thing we got near, but they didn't really like that one. I think it was more the alcoholism than the creepiness of it. I was going to say, there are some chrysalis questions a little later in the show. Um, um, and I'm disappointed that there was never a Fiona versus Cthulhu pitch at any point. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been beyond her capacity, too. But uh, who knows what we would have found in the in the dark world had we gone further down that direction. All right. My next question is, what are your biggest influences as a writer? Basic writer question there. Uh, well, uh, my, I mean, one of my primary influences, and it took me a while to realize this, um, uh, Ali and I aren't married anymore, but we're still friends. Obviously, we have Mary Ellen. And uh, I, was, I realized in retrospect that I was a huge fan of her dad when I was a kid. I went to see, I think it must have been when I was around 12 years old, I went to see a movie called The Legend of Hell House. And uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen it because it's an amazing movie, but it's very, his name is Richard Pop is what we called him. And, and uh, his, his writing was always very, very personal. All of his characters were named Richard. All of their wives were named Ruth. I mean, he, he really didn't embroider it very much. You know, the kids were named Allie and Chris. And, um, and in Hell House, although it's it was it was kind of very it was kind of one of the first of the the haunted house and the psychic goes in, but there's also scientists and they're going to use their science to get rid of the ghosts and all that. Um, and all kinds of incredibly scary, weird things happen. But the ending of the movie was about the smallest, most personal, mundane feeling that somebody had—just a little tiny thing about a person that was behind all this craziness. And at 12 years old, I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, it all boils down to just this simple human thing. And then, you know, and not thinking, oh, gee, 20 years from now, you know, I'm going to meet that guy's daughter when she grows up and I'll marry her. But I did and got to know him. And I, that really shows like so weird were always started, you know, they all always started from that impulse. You know, I'm thinking of like vampire, you know, the, the sleep when you're dead motto. And it was like, you know, what would motivate somebody to want to be a vampire, you know, at a young age? What, you know, what small character thing could that grow out of? Because I wasn't really, not really terribly interested in just writing, you know, big crazy stuff for the, you know, for the pleasure of finding out what kind of big crazy stuff I can think of. That really doesn't interest me at all. It really is what's the impact on a human being? Where did it come from on a human being? And um, so that was a big influence for me. But, uh, you know, uh, I think my eighth grade teacher gave me some back a report that said Edgar Allan Poe is dead, long live John Cooksey. So apparently I was pretty dark uh, early on. Um, and uh, yeah, dark, gooey, scary things, I guess must have interested me. And I, you know, the other, 
influence probably, I would guess, was my parents' divorce. Uh, you know, my parents got divorced when I was seven. And by the time I was nine or 10, I was writing horror stories. And like dark, you know, Siamese twins who kill the other ones so they can have their bodies and stuff. And and uh, looking back, I would have definitely put me in therapy if I were with my parent. Um, but I think writing just became a way for me to work things out. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the episode Nightmare, I think, was the fourth one we did or something like that of the kid uh, being afraid that the monster is chasing him down the hall. And eventually the monster resolves into his parents arguing um, previous to getting a divorce. And that was straight out of my life. That's exactly what happened to me. That was my grandmother's hallway. And, and um, so I think it was also, uh, you know, that those early experiences put me on a road to needing to write in this genre as a kind of catharsis of all the, the darkness that I'd accumulated and all the fears and anxieties I had, I guess. Wow. Well, I just want to say that I am a huge fan of Richard Matheson. So uh, He's happy to hear that. Absolutely a genius. Uh, and, yeah, I, and, it, and, and there's a great story too, not to derail, but, you know, I remember, you know, I, I, you bring such, uh, you know, you bring so much when you read his writing, right? And and I heard, a, uh, you know, before there were podcasts, there, were, there was an hour radio thing on NPR many years ago that was very similar to a podcast. And, he, and on the ride home, the guy spent the entire time, an hour talking about Shrinking Man and how it was a metaphor for the shrinking role of the male in 1950s society and the nuclear thing and the mom and the feminist and the blah, 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 all this stuff, right? And it was really fascinating. And I went to see him and I said, wow, you know, you put all that stuff into the book and, you know, how did you think up all that stuff? And he said, no, no, I just went and sat on the stairs in the basement and thought, hmm, there's a spider. And everything <laughs> that came out of him was just his unconscious. He shaped his personal experience, which rarely went outside the house. He didn't even like to leave the house. Rarely, uh, he just put it in there, and then all these layers just came out of it. So I can't claim that kind of genius. Uh, you know, I have to think about it. <laughs> he was a natural. I actually have a signed first edition of The Shrinking Man over on my bookshelf right now. So yeah. I purchased that recently. So that's cool that you brought that up. Yeah, he's a, he, he, was, a, he was a brilliant, uh, brilliant writer and, and a lovely father-in-law, too. All right, so one of the things I like to do whenever we have a guest on the show is go digging into their IMDb to find some weird credit that I haven't seen discussed anywhere <laughs> else. So a question I have for you is, what is How to Boil a Frog, and how did it come about? Uh, how to Boil a Frog came about, um, the, the, the roots were a bit deeper. My first job, other than a, an, a, a, an episode of the Police Academy cartoon show, which thankfully you didn't pick out of my IMDb page, um, <laughs> was a sitcom in Virginia called Big Brother Jake. And, and uh, this was back at, uh, our, our boss came in one day and, and like all sitcoms, the whole rule was, you know, never talk about issues and never rock the boat and whatever. And he came in and was upset about environmental issues. And, and, uh, and he, I was the serious writer, I guess, on staff. And um, so I, I went away and I read a bunch of books and brought back this 27 page fact sheet about environmental things. And everybody's eyes glazed over, and then I was kind of not allowed to speak for about a month. And <laughs> some years later, it, but it and it never really fit what I was doing. So weird was very much about spiritual issues and sacrifice, particularly sacrifice. You know, sacrificing yourself for, um, you know, for a monster because in that monster is probably some humanity. And um, 
and the collector of the show that came afterwards was sort of similar in theme. So I, I was writing about, you know, human feelings and foibles and things and the environmental stuff never fit. And, um, but I, you know, I had a kid and I was very concerned about the future and became more and more so. And um, around 2006, I had some time in between projects and, and a tiny bit of money that I was going to, and I thought, oh, well, you know, I write things and, and I cut images together and put music to them and I make people cry and laugh. And so that must be worth something. And started calling a bunch of organizations and nobody had any idea what to do with me. And mm -hmm. went off down a road to write something, I guess do a documentary about the spin campaign around global warming. So it was gonna be kind of a satirical handbook for corporations on how to uh, fool the public about global warming. And then after I'd done that for a while, I thought, oh, well, that's never going to last. You know, people are obviously going to realize it's real, which was completely stupid and wrong. And uh, so I, the, the subject matter became broader. It became about the bigger picture of, of which global warming is a part, our impact on the planet. And the material was so incredibly depressing that I thought, well, it has to be a comedy. So I kept the title and, um, and, uh, and ended up spending five years and a lot of money um, to make uh, uh, a, a comedic documentary. And that's what How to Boil a Frog is. And uh, so I cut that one and and, um, and that aired in Canada. And eventually I cut a shorter one and that one's on YouTube now. That was sort of my contribution to the current um, situation was, well, at least I can put up my funny movie. And, uh, and so that's, uh, for those who want to watch it, it's on YouTube right now. Great. All right, last question for me. So what are the special challenges in working on children's television versus other types of television? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, the, I mean, what immediately pops to mind is the executives you have to work with in the sense that I think a lot of people perceive children's television as having certain parameters, you know, that, that have to be followed. And, uh, you know, obviously language and things like that, but that's not really, that's not really what the challenge is. I think, um, the challenge for me is that I write things that everybody can watch and Rugrats certainly was a lesson in that because, you know, if you're two, you know, you see, Hey, best friends. I love, I've got a best friend. This is my favorite show. Right. And at, and at five, you're like, this has a story. They're going outside. And you know, if you're stoned in college, you're like, this is weird. Like look at their necks and beyond. And if you're a parent, you're like, Oh my God, yes, the parents are going through the same thing. And, and uh, so it sort of works at all levels, but the stories, I think, can take on a resonance that isn't that is only perceivable at various layers. And I think that's really the challenge. You know, the 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 story that I was proudest of on Rugrats was called the first cut, and I don't think it was one of the most popular episodes. But it's the the uh, this, the episode where Tommy gets a cut in his finger for the first time, and he bleeds, and he has no idea what's going on because it never happened before. And if you don't know when you get hurt, you know, when you get your heart broken for the first time, you think it's going to go on forever because you've never had your heart broken before, right? I'm going to be miserable the rest of my life. And then the third time you're like, yeah, this is going to hurt for a week. And um, so that was a story that, you know, worked for little kids because they were like, oh, my God, you know, the stuffing is coming out of me. Um, but at the same time, it really was a story about a larger thing about just saying to people, you know what, you will get hurt. You know, you will get cut and it will be okay eventually. You know, we, we do heal from these things. And those are the kind of things that I'm interested in doing. But, you know, in a, in a kid level, it has to work for the kids and it has to be 
entertaining. It has to be, ideally, it has to be funny, um, too. Because I, I just, the, the kids programming that's earnest and sincere is just so dreary to me. I, I just can't bear it. So for me, it's got to be goofy and silly and absurd. I think that's what works best. And, you know, then you then you get into a show like, uh, like um, uh, Adventure Time, um, you know, which is goofy and silly and is probably the darkest show on television. I haven't watched all of it, but Mariel's told me that it's got this complete post-apocalyptic storyline. And, uh, and I think that's brilliant, you know, Rick and Morty. Look at those shows. They're so dark, but so funny, you know, and kids can get a lot out of them. All right. That's awesome. First, I just want to say thank you so much for creating such a realistic portrayal of grief in the series. Oh. That's one of my favorite things about the show, and I think it's what makes it such a timeless show that can be appreciated from all different viewpoints. Was there a real-life experience that led you to be able to write about grief like that, or was it all just part of the creative process of making a fictional yet realistic family? Um, well, you know, I mean, uh, for me, like I said, uh, you know, I'm a child of divorce, and I think that came out of the blue for me. Um, and it, and divorce hits different kids at different ages, you know, differently. 15 is way different from, you know, even kids who are 40 get hit by divorce when their parents divorce. Seven is a real, uh, it's a time to go dark. I, I think when it, stuff hits you at seven, I, I think it sinks in quite deeply. Um, and that was my loss. I didn't lose anybody in my family till my grandmother died and I was already 30 something. And, um, but within the show, I would guess the inspiration was either, and I don't want to overshare because it's not my story. Um, it was either the inspiration or it was certainly what attracted him. My friend and the executive on the show, Lee Gator, who is, you know, ought to be a co-creator on it just because his influence was so huge including in with me and my stories and guiding me in, in, in the show, uh, his dad drowned when he was a little boy. And so it was quite powerful for him. And I think he really, but I took to it because, you know, sadness is real and loss is real. And I think, you know, you ask what's hard about doing kids shows. And I, I think it isn't hard. It's what's necessary in kids shows. There's a reason that the Grimm's fairy tales were so dark is because kids know early on that life is dark and that there's scary stuff out there and sadness. And to take all of that out of their entertainment is, is to do them a disservice um, because it doesn't give them a chance to learn about it. And um, for me, you know, they started with this story about this kid, you know, kind of literally losing his parents in the sense that they all sort of ended up downstream and searched for his parents. So obviously she was identifying uh, with the loss of her own father. And I just expanded on that storyline. And the only, you know, I wanted to show how that grief had worked on the different members of the family differently. That Fee, you know, was such an open, raw, emotional person that she would always wear that open wound. And that open wound is what gave her so much empathy for even creatures. Um, where Jack was more shut down, he remembered it a bit more that night. You know, later on we saw flashback where he was kind of aware. Um, you know, it made him more serious, um, but he didn't really want to go there, uh, didn't really want to think about it, wasn't, you know, intrigued by what dad was into. He, he actually hated what dad was into because he felt like that's what led him to go out and die. And, you know, with Molly, from the very beginning, and it was sort of woven in with her alcoholism, her recovery, um, 
you know, she was dealing with the grief in her own way and, and a lot of it through her art. And um, in particular, the, 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 the song um, More Like a River and, and More Like a River was a thought I had during a very painful time um, before the show. Uh, when uh, and I just felt like that just that phrase sort of came to me I, that I didn't I, I didn't want to bottle bottle up my emotions anymore because I knew that was too hard I really wanted to let them out and be able to talk about them and um, and that thought came back when we were doing that first episode and writing that first song that she was thinking about the house in the mountains and all that imagery that later on we uh, we went out to Canmore and found a house in the mountains and I knew we would pay all that off someday um, the imagery in that song. So it was a portrait of grief of, you know, in three different ways, but it bound the family together in very different ways. And um, so it, it was never a negative, it was just life, you know? And uh, yeah, that was, that was sort of my own, uh, it was the core of the series to me. And her search for her father, and really the only, sorry, the, as an addendum, the only time that Lee and I ever disagreed about that was I was heading towards wish fulfillment. My goal was that she was going to go into the other world and pull her father back. And, and he was quite concerned that for kids who had lost their parents, who did contact us and say, thank you, kids, young kids of that age or younger who were dealing with that kind of grief, that it would give them an unrealistic expectation that their parents could come back from the dead. And that was legitimate. I mean, we never got there, so we never had to fight about it, but, um, you know, that's the that's the little kid fantasy part of me is, you know, is the wishful fulfillment of saying, I, I want dad back and I can get him. Um, and Lee was probably right about that. I lost my dad a couple of years ago and rewatching season two of So Weird helped me through it. And I could really identify with the different ways that each of the Phil's family members dealt with it because my own family dealt with it in such drastically different ways that I took a lot of comfort from watching the show and really identifying with being that. So thank you for your part in writing that. Uh, I, if I came even even moderately close to, to expressing some level of what you've experienced and, and it was helpful, then I'm glad I had the opportunity. Thank you. Another thing that I've noticed when I was looking through the original season three ideas doc that you shared, I noticed that a question was made about wondering if Disney was ready for Chrysalis yet. So I noticed that you guys didn't give up on that and that was really heartwarming to me. Is there any idea in particular from the original plans from season three that you most wish could have come into fruition? Uh, man, you probably remember more about it than I do. Um, what were the, remind me what the season three ideas were because I know I went a, way, a certain way down the road. It was super painful for me to uh, to be pulled out of the show at that point because I was so deeply into their reality at that at that point. Um, what were some of the, do you remember what the ideas were? Have you, have you got there? Um, there I remember a few of them. There was one that was like a Hotel California-esque one where they'd go into a hotel and then they would forget all their painful memories. Oh yeah. Kind of really cool. Uh, there was one where there's an idea posed about the gang going to a haunted bowling alley. That sounded like it would be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure well, we were part of the reason that we got separated from so weird was they, again, they felt it was too dark and it wasn't, it wasn't merely that it was dark. It was just, they just weren't even heading in that direction and, uh, and really wanted to go to lighter, fluffier stuff. And, and, um, and so that, that phone call came when we were in the middle of, uh, I was in the middle of editing shelter 
So we were sitting in the in the editing room, laughing ourselves sick, making up dog voices, um, <laughs> in what I think was probably the funniest episode of the series, and then you know, got terminated for not being funny enough. So I'm sure I was thinking about, beyond that, I was thinking, you know, Lee had said, look, you know, it needs to have more humor in it. I was like, oh, that's good. So we did Troll and we did Shelter and, and I'm sure the bowling alley was like thinking of places we could go that would be fun. But the uh, the hotel one kind of reminds me of, Mariel showed me an episode of uh, Doctor Who that I think is her favorite, the hotel episode. I, I, uh, but the, the House of Lost Memories sounds something like me. So did you ever get to watch the season three that aired or did you just kind of stay away from that? Uh, I think I, I think I saw the first one, the first one with Annie. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I saw any of the ones after that, but the cast members were communicating to me and they were expressing their feelings about um, the storyline being yanked in a different direction and, and, uh, and then being yanked back later on when the fans said that they wanted the darker uh, or the dad storyline, I think came back later in the season and, and I was friends with Bruce, and, and so we, we communicated somewhat. I can't remember if I, I don't think I saw many more of the episodes because I was on to other stuff and didn't have time. And it was also, uh, you know, it was painful, but it was, the show was different. Like um, Kara had gone, and, and so it wasn't going to be the same show anyway. Yeah, of course. There's one moment that stuck out to me in that first episode of season three where they switched out. It was Kara Delizia's last episode, and they ended it with, be giving away her father's ring in her last yeah. episode. Yeah. I was wondering what was your thoughts on that? Because to me, it seems totally out of character. It's something we've discussed on the podcast a lot. Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, I think something like that is a symbolic handoff. In season, the end of season one of The Collector, we had a great actor whose name I, I, I'm blanking on, but she was amazing and uh, who was uh, the co-lead in the show. Um, uh, I really should remember her name. She's wonderful. And at the end of the season, she wanted to leave and go to LA or something. And and we brought in Sonia Saloma. And, but we brought the other actor back for three episodes and she overlapped with Sonia and created a creepy little kind of soul transfer thing. So we could explain, you know, we were explaining, oh, her, the devil pulled out her soul and stuck it in this other body. And um, I think stuff like that is inherently satisfying. And if you're going to bring in a character like Annie, you have to have some sort of handoff, I think. Um, so I, I would take the ring on that level of just uh, you know, to, to physicalize something rather than just having to be a concept. I think it's important. But um, um, yeah, but there's the purists are always going to be like, she would never give the ring away. That's completely false. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And my last question for you. So Weird and Rugrats were two of my favorite shows growing up, so I'm really glad to see that you've done work on both of them. Yeah. Could you share a little bit more with us about your experience working on Rugrats, and are there any major similarities or differences between writing for a Nickelodeon show versus Disney Channel? Uh, well, Rugrats was uh, was super fun, as you may imagine. Um, we got hired off writing an adult comedy, and were there, the, the, what had happened with Rugrats, um, was they had uh, uh, Arlene Klasky was the co-owner of the company Klasky Chupo and you know was at home with her one-year-old going insane and never taking a shower and doing the usual thing that mothers often do and uh, and I think I don't know whether the baby actually started talking to her in her head or whether she imagined it but she had the idea and they went out and hired a bunch of um, uh, of writers and made three seasons I guess and it didn't do terribly well 
And then uh, Sumner Redstone bought Viacom, which included Blockbuster. And Blockbuster was hemorrhaging money at the time. And they had these, you know, these little shows that they, and he said, exploit the licenses. So they went back to Rugrats and they decided to make some more. And they sent out a you know, license to their new owner at Paramount, I think, to make a movie. And they, they licensed out a, a, a CD-ROM and a video game and a live stage show and a comic strip and some TV specials. And it was, they, they just saw it as a widget. We'll just write more of these things. Well, it turned out to be incredibly hard to write. And they ended up firing all the writers of all those projects. And uh, so our bosses immediately got sucked away to write the movie. We co-wrote the specials. And, and then Ali and I got promoted to run the series, to run the series and ended up writing. I supervised the comic strip. I ended up co-writing the music and, and the book for, uh, for the stage show with Mark Mothersbaugh. And, um, so all of that was really incredibly fun. And, and I had to learn a bunch of new formats that I'd never been in before. Who knew what a CD-ROM was or remembers that now anymore? Um, a DVD-ROM. Um, the similarities, I think, you know, other than being sensitive to the fact that you have families watching stuff together, which was the goal at the time and then was poo-pooed as, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. Every, you know, there's 47 screens in the house. Everybody's in a different room and is now, once again, the holy grail. You get the family all together watching a show and Stranger Things and other shows are kind of like that. And um, um, the, uh, so that sensitivity wasn't so weird because it was going to have scary stuff in it and it was going to have sad stuff in it and it was going to have um, adult stuff in it, including adult grief, right, and adult music. And so all those things had to work as much as possible for every age that was watching the show. But beyond that, uh, the great preparation was running an animated show is infinitely more complicated than running a live action show. We had, we were doing, you know, 30 episodes, each with two stories in it per year, I think. And every stage, every episode had like, every story had like 10 stages of approval. So at any given day, I was going through like nine stages of approval on 12 different episodes. Um, uh, we had this huge spreadsheet just to keep track of it. And when I got to there, we, when I got to uh, to Vancouver and we started in the second season, we were doing 26 episodes, which is a lot. And um, by the time uh, one of the directors walked in, he was going to do four episodes, I think, in the second season. I gave him three scripts and an outline, including the outline of Twin, which was the final episode before we started shooting, I think, because I'd had so much practice uh, getting so far ahead because animation was so complicated. We did so many stories. I was able to kind of master 26 half hours in that amount of time. Uh, so that was great preparation for it. All right, I guess I'm next. So. <laughs> Uh, since you mentioned Twin, I figure I should start with Twin because yeah. uh, I think everyone who's a fan of So Weird has questions about Twin. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, first off, were you on set for filming of Twin? Yes. Yeah, I was. I was, because uh, we, we were, yeah, I was there for most of that episode. Okay. Usually, I, often I was too busy, like I was writing or I was elsewhere, but it was the final episode of the season. So, I was definitely up okay. on the roof of the Hotel Vancouver, which was freezing cold and wet um, yeah. <laughs> with the giant crane hanging off the edge and our, you know, over the gargoyles and our stunt, uh, our stunt woman uh, hanging off the edge of the roof and all that. 
um, and the performances uh, that were elsewhere, different location. Yeah, I was there for most of Twin. Okay, well, you've kind of already started. I was going to ask you about what production of Twin was like, because we know that Kara left the show and that Disney wanted to take the show in a lighter direction, so um, changes were made to the script, which resulted in the ending being reshot. Yeah. So I was wondering how much time you all had to make changes. Well, we fi we filmed the, sh the episode I wrote, um, which the ending was dad saying, you know, this is what's gone on. I was taken before my time, uh, but this is your mission. Keep at it, basically. And and I'm going to protect you. And um, and then the creature, which um, our visual effects supervisor, I think Mark Verisco was our visual effects supervisor. He's in Australia now. And uh, he was visual effects supervisors nowadays are mostly code monkeys who have gotten into that business. But at that point, they were all artists. They'd all grown up as kids sketching. And Mark was incredibly bored by all meetings. And in the big meetings, he would just sketch stuff. And he and I started trading uh, drawings during one of the big meetings, during a concept meeting, back and forth across the table. Uh, and I sort of gave him this thing that had three heads. It was sort of a still encrypted sort of thing. And he drew it a hundred times better than I did and passed it back and forth. And that was where that creature was born. Uh, and we filmed him pulling, well, Kara up, we, we filmed, there was a pony wall. We actually built a, a short wall on the roof uh, back from the edge to give the illusion of her hanging down and dad pulls her up onto the pony wall and, and, uh, and has a talk with her. And we shot that, we edited that. The visual effects were never finalized, but we had temps of dad falling down into the pavement and going into the abyss, um, wrestling the creature to protect Fee. And um, I think we were gone. We went on, We by the time they were remaking that, I think I was writing Halloween Town 2 already by that point. And, um, uh, and they brought Tom Astell back to rewrite the end of the episode and he called me and he hadn't been on i mean he'd written episodes periodically um but they hadn't hired john and bruce yet i don't think that was in between so uh he hadn't been on the show regularly he called me up and said i don't know what should they say <laughs> and so we talked about it and i you know i it was a little hard for me to change the ending but i, I you know we talked through and talked about what dad could say and and basically what dad needed to say was You've been incredibly brave. You followed my footsteps, but you know your job is done. It's too dangerous for you. I don't want you to do this anymore. You know you've you've done what you needed to do, and so that's essentially the speech that he wrote. And then they that was the episode that they finalized. Uh, and I think he still kind of gets taken away by the creature and, and protects her at the end. Okay, so so everything was refilmed. It was reshot, not within the same week. It was. No, I, I think it was probably several weeks later. Gotcha. Okay. It's something I've always wondered. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I do have a couple questions about the original season three, so I'm sorry to bring it up again. But, <laughs> not, a, not a painful topic. I just don't know that much about it. Okay. Well, um, as we all know, Fee was originally going to go to hell to yeah. rescue her dad. Yeah, that, so. was the, that was the song. There was a song about that, or we talked about it at some point. Oh, well, that was... That was um, in the darkness. Uh, right. In the darkness was yeah, that was the the payoff of of Molly's uh, a vision. But we talked about it too in the the fire episode, right? With the the destiny, uh, destiny, destiny. Yeah, we talked about that a bit. I think then. Yeah. yeah. So we were wondering what your all's depiction of hell would have been like. 
Uh, fire and ice, I think, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, that was, I think that really would have been a design thing. You know, I, my guess is, you know, in, in Nightmare, the design for the Nightmare House was kind of kid-like. You know, it was kind of crazy and it was very, it was sort of a colorful version of, of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, basically everything at weird angles and, and, uh, and, uh, but I think, so I, my guess is that when it came down to it, I, you know, I wouldn't have, unless we had no money and we just had to go to a cave somewhere, I, I, I think it, it would have been based um, in memory. You know, it would have been a nightmarish version of the, um, of the home, you know, because if you think about, you know, what, if the intent was to punish dad for trying to undo, you know, evil in the world and for the things that he had done, what would be the worst possible thing you could do to dad? Well, I think the worst possible thing you could do to dad would be to put him back in his home the night he left and, and left his children behind and went and died. You know, and so I think, and and that I'm I'm thinking of that. Um, it comes from a different place, but I'm thinking of the images in um, What Dreams May Come, and uh, you know the, which I think is probably the most beautiful romantic novel. Not a great movie, but the most beautiful romantic novel of all time in some ways. The idea that I would rather be in hell with you than in heaven without you, and that uh, and Pop really believed this that when you crossed over you went to a place and perhaps he's there now that's kind of formed by your idea of what heaven is but eventually the scales fall from your eyes and you, you, you adjust to what it really is but the people who commit suicide get stuck in some black and white nightmarish version of their own life and can't ever get out of it and that's why he goes down into that place to save her to save his wife and um so i think for me i'm sure hell would have reflected that i'm sure it would have been the moment of his greatest loss in the place that he loved the most that he had to live over and over for all of eternity i'm sure it would have been something like that in the end Whew, that is so sad <laughs> I, I, don't know. I love sadness i love sadness. <laughs> no that that's incredible i i would never have thought that we were just kind of envisioning because you know you would be working on a disney channel budget maybe something kind of like the set for will of the wisp or something but that sounds yeah. awesome no, oh, we just flat ran out of money for Will of the Wisp. We didn't have anything. <laughs> All we could do was a dark space with a bus in it. And it worked really well. I thought it worked really well. Yeah. Okay, one more question about original season three for me. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you all planned on having Rick come back to life. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you think that would have happened. And um, we know he would have had a new body because you said that in the FAQ. But um, would it like his old one? And would his relationship with the family have been any different? Uh, well, uh, questions like would it have been his body usually are dependent on whether the actor is available at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that actor would have been available. So I, I probably would have gone for putting him back in his old body. And that, that's, a, that's a, a conundrum that I've addressed in different stories at different times. Um, of where that body comes from, you know, the body has to be kind of reconstructed from something, you know, is not just brought back into his old moldering skeleton, right? He's, he's come back into a real human body that's alive. Um, so would have had to solve that logistical problem, but I think he probably would have looked by himself, looked like himself because that would have been the most emotionally affecting way. And, um, 
you know, I think that would pretty clearly be the end of the series. So, uh, you know, to some degree, you're thinking happily ever after, which is, again, you know, and to Lee's point, kind of problematic. Um, because the truth is, A, you know, people that have lost their loved ones don't get them back. And B, um, you know, the day would have come when the toilet clogged up and he was watching a football game and they would have argued. And so nothing's perfect forever, right? There is no happily ever after. Uh, and I think, but I, I, you know, if I was going to go for wish fulfillment, I would have gone for wish fulfillment. I, I think it would have been the, you know, you would have seen Jack cry and you would have seen all the people, you know, they would have all kind of expressed their, their relief in the way that they, uh, in the, they most wanted to. Okay. That's kind of how I envisioned it happening. Once I read about that is that it would end a moment where he came back. Um, so thank you. Uh, and okay, one last question for me. This one's easier. Um, have you ex ever experienced anything paranormal? If not, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? Uh, well, all my paranormal stuff is uh, such as it is 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 about my uh, dad, and um, uh, my uh, my dad is actually my stepfather, and he was the one that that my uh, my mom got divorced from when I was a kid, and and he was an alcoholic, um, which is uh, you know, no doubt behind, um, you know, me following up on that in Mali. And, um, I, he, uh, was from Texas and didn't really want to ever be from Texas, but he ended up back in Texas and, um, he was being taken care of by a woman down there named Rhonda. And one day she called me up and said, John, your father's dead. We're having a funeral. You should come. And, uh, I was a little shocked and I went down to Texas at which from Vancouver is about two two hours off. And, and the key to the story is that I had a watch at the time, not this one, but I had a watch that was both analog and digital that my wife, Allie, had given me. So it was very, very hard to reset because you had to reset the analog and then reset the digital. And of course, I'm OCD, so it had to match. And so I, I know I'm always very meticulous setting that watch. And I went down there and I went to the funeral and arrived on time. So presumably I set the watch correctly. And the next day I was giving a bunch of stuff away to a woman who had worked with him, a young woman. I was going to give all her his furniture and stuff. And she was going to help me pack up. And she was, we were going to meet at 10 or something. And so I went over there and I was backing up and she didn't show up and I was getting a little resentful. And a long while later she showed up and I was like, um, well, thanks for coming. And she was like, what? And I said, well, you said you were going to come at 10. And she said, it is 10. And I looked at my watch and my watch said, 1245. And mind you, the digital and the analog said 1245 matched. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that, but you know, whatever, let's do this. So we packed up his stuff. And later on, I was driving around going somewhere else. And I thought, okay, you know, I don't, I'm not a big believer in this stuff. I, I know people, I know I have a friend who clears uh, the military of military housing of ghosts. So you know, it's not like I don't know people who are sure that it's true, but I, I didn't know what to make of it. I was driving around. I thought, okay, if my father was going to communicate with me, he would know that when I was a kid, one of the ways that I handled my anxiety was I did math problems in my head. And so I thought, all right, two hours and 45 minutes, that's 165 minutes. What are the factors of 165? Okay, well, it's three and five and 13, three, five, 13, 15, 13. What are the 15th and 13th letters of the alphabet? Anybody know? <laughs> they are okay. So 
there you have it, you know. Did my dad change my watch to let me know he was okay? I don't know, but that's uh, that's probably my the closest I've come. Wow, thank you. That's a, at least a, not too scary of an experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think if I ever, I've often thought, you know, I think I was scared of the dark as a kid. If I ever actually saw a ghost, I think I would just drop dead from fright. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, so we know that Henry Winkler was part of the show in any way. Did you ever mm -hmm. meet him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, Allie and I went to meet him at lunch when we first got the job. And he is, uh, however sweet and wonderful you think he is, he's more than that. He is uh, just an extraordinarily kind, generous human being. And he welcomed us. And uh, so I saw him a couple of times after that, but we were adapting. So Weird was based on a show he had done about real Phenomena, uh, paranormal phenomena, and um, uh, and I didn't hear from him too much after that um, uh, until uh, I mean, unfortunately my my best Henry story is embarrassing for me because we had he wanted to adapt a show that was about and it's a phenomenon that apparently happens regularly people get transplants and then their tastes change they like dogs where they hated them and they can eat mustard where they were allergic and all this stuff. And I had taken that idea and made it into James Gar. And James Gar was a story I really wanted to tell about uh, somebody who's in a coma whose soul has left their body and, and thus provides a body for somebody else who's dying. And he called up and one day and said, well, I'd really like to do this transplant thing. And I said, well, Henry, I, you know, I understand, but I've just done James Gar and, um, and this and that, and this is why I wanted to do it. And he was lovely and he said, oh, well, you know, you're absolutely right, I totally understand. And then about five minutes, Lee Gaither called me back and said, when Henry Winkler calls you, you say, yes, Henry. And, <laughs> and this, this lovely man uh, was too sweet to say to me, no, actually, I would like to do this episode. And anyway, uh, as, uh, you know, to honor Henry, we, we later did Transplant, um, which, worked, which was fantastic, right? It gave us a chance to, to, um, to use the music thing, and, and uh, it was a great episode. OK. Um... And do you have a personal favorite episode or storyline? Personal favorite episode or storyline? Um, well, the I think the uh, the Molly stuff really intrigued me. There was so much there. The you know Molly's lineage, um, and what that would have eventually meant for Fee. You know that there was a line of witches basically there that was going back, and that Molly had prescience. And Twin was about that. The idea that you know, the ripples, when, it, when water hits a stone, the ripples back up and that that's kind of her trying to express how it is that she sees things and why she was able to write um, that song uh, about the prescience, about knowing what this thing, the, the scene that was in destiny, that he was going to go off and die. Um, and I think, uh, that, you know, the best, the thing that hops to mind is Banshee. And, and um, I think uh, The Rock is is probably not anybody's, I don't know if it's anybody's favorite song, but it's lyrically, I think it's the song that I'm proudest of of everything that I've ever done because it works on so many different levels at the same time. And it was easy to write in the sense that I got to the end and it was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with the chorus. And all of a sudden the rock was, you know, fed my ang anger became the rock was my anchor. And all of a sudden I knew what that chorus was and it worked so beautifully. Um, and it was, 
for fee the ultimate sacrifice and it's the sacrifice that um that disney channel did not allow her to make mm -hmm. uh, because the original um offer that she made was to go back and offer her own life to save her grandfather to to offer years of her own life to save her grandfather and and uh and disney channel just couldn't allow that and so we changed it to um you know the fact that her father had been taken unfairly which was legitimate but but that was you know for me that was kind of like whining at death and saying well come on not twice as opposed to you know the whole basis of the series and what i wanted to say to to kids and to everyone is you know life requires sacrifice to do good is to sacrifice you know we 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 used to have problems with solutions but now we have dilemmas and that means that some harm has to be done to do some good. And a hero is somebody who absorbs that harm. Um, and that's what a hero is for me. And uh, and Fee was the embodiment of that principle. I didn't articulate it like that until recently in, in, a, different, in a different context, but looking back, I realized that's what she was. And so for me, Banshee was sort of the ultimate of that. And it was so, but, Ma, but Mackenzie's performance of the song and that moment with her dad and, and um, yeah, uh, the rock still makes me cry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cry if I talk about it now. But just watching the two of them, you know, watching him, watching her sing that song, and and the intercut with, with Jack, you know, being his noble self and and laying in the idea that Jack was a knight in some previous life and with all the suits of armor and all that stuff. It was that was all very meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. I love that idea so much. Yeah, my next question was, was about favorite songs. So that would be like The Rock or More Like a River. Yeah, I mean, they were all powerful mm -hmm. for me in different ways. Um, one, you know, the the song that, again, it wasn't necessarily my favorite song, but the one that I've often looked back on is is New Math. And it was, it was a great song in context. It was a great song for that style, uh, for that episode um, in Listen, I think. And... Um, but that was again. That was me. That was me talking to children of divorce and 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 parents and saying, "This has an impact, right?" Um, and I had I had had that conversation that nobody ever wants to have of, of um, you know, you're going to have two homes now. Um, so that one was uh, was deeply personal for me as well. But you know, more like a river was kind of the core song probably, and and then. Um, uh, um, Love is Broken became the grander sort of operatic uh, version of that at the other end. You know, those those two songs bookended my time on the series and they really bookended Molly's experience of her own grief in the series. And, and so then it has this unbelievable guitar solo from, uh, from, from that guitar player. It was like, I need something that sounds as good as what's in Comfortably Numb. And then he plays this amazing <laughs> guitar solo. Um, so that was quite beautiful. All right, thank you. Um, I'll pass it off to Melissa now. Okay, uh, I have what feels like a million questions, but I'll try to narrow it down to like five or six. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, my first question is, there are a lot of uh, people who also share, which is another show you and Ali were behind. Uh, were some of those actors sought out or were all those just pure coincidences? Uh, for the actors from The Collector, were they what? I can't really remember all their names, but I know Alex Johnson was one of them. She was the ice skater. Uh, yeah. No, we, uh, Alex, we knew, uh, I 
think does Alex perform in the ice skater? I don't I don't think so. She wasn't a musician. Uh, no, I think that one I think not, Alex Yeah, Alex was I think Alex was a coincidence because we needed an actor of that age, which wasn't easy to find at the time. And so that was kind of a happy uh, surprise. I'd never actually met Alex because we were separated on so weird. So that was actually the first time I met her was when she came into uh, audition. Um, that one was a coincidence. Other actors, oh, wow. I'm sure we went and, and found at later times. Because there were, you know, the beauty of both of those shows is they were kind of anthological. So we were constantly using new actors. Um, and I yeah. met a lot of people. Yeah. That was, the, it was a great part. It was a great introduction to Vancouver because we met so many actors. Yeah. Okay. So my next question is, what was the process like to hand off the show to another showrunner in the final? Were you given the choice to stay on or did Disney basically fire you to make way for their new direction? Uh, we were, they went in another direction. What is it that Cosmo uh, says in, uh, in, uh, in The Emperor's New Groove? Um, yeah, they went in another direction and they wanted, huh. you know, specifically they wanted, they perceived that we we had taken the show to a dark place or kept the show in a dark place, which was not wrong as, you, as is obvious from talking to me. It's like, yeah, I like darkness and sadness. Um, yeah. And that's why they went and found yeah. John and, and Bruce had worked on the show. He'd written Sacrifice and some other episodes. Uh, Blues, I think he also wrote. And um, um, so the the handoff happened. We were still working for Disney Channel. We, that's we we went on from there to uh, do Halloween Town two, and I think yeah. that's what we were doing yeah. a period of time. So we were all still friends, um, but uh, there wasn't other than talking to Tom about the and the rewrite at the end of Twin. We weren't involved in anything with season three, other than hearing yeah. from the actors periodically, in from behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, that actually kind of relates to my next question. Uh, there were a lot of episodes in season three that take on inspiration from the original season three episode ideas. Uh, yeah. Did you know at all that those uh, or that the writers were going to use those ideas, or were there certain agreements made beforehand uh, what they could or couldn't do? No, no, they own the Disney owns everything. Um, once you're a writer, your work it's all a work for hire, so they own everything and. Uh, I think they had intended again to take it in a in a different direction, funnier yeah. and, and more based on Alex. But I think there was just a lot of fan reaction that they really wanted to tie up the dad story or have that be involved somehow. So they brought that stuff back. Um, you, I'm sure you all know much more than I do about what they ended up following up on. Uh, uh, but I did hear eventually from Mac and from uh, Patrick that uh, some of that stuff was coming back, and they were pleased about that. Yeah. Okay. Um... I know I asked you about this on Twitter at one point, and I'm pretty sure many other people would like to know uh, as well. Um, I'm honestly blown away every time I watch Halloween Town, the original one, and I notice how similar the Cromwells are to the Phillips. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering what kind of inspiration was there because uh, it's, Weird. There's an eccentric teen girl with an obsession with all things weird, a skeptic brother, and a mother who knows more than she lets on, and a dead father. It's a lot to be more than just a coincidence. And a grandmother who's obviously a witch. Um, yeah. yeah. Halloween Town was a. Uh, that was the first thing. I'm trying to think of the timing because we must have done them. Well, I, I, I was working on Halloween Town when 
Allie and Mariel and I were in Ireland and Mariel was only four. And I think that was, um, that was before So Weird. So that was, yeah, that must've been before So Weird. Um, and that was a rewrite. There was a script already that they had, they gave us to rewrite. And, and I worked that in, in rainy, in rainy, uh, you know, in, in, in attics all over Ireland was, I was writing that. And, um, so that was a coincidence because, uh, you know, and, and other than they came from the same factory because uh, So Weird was also given to us. So other than adding the grandma, who is not Debbie Reynolds, uh, much later in, uh, in, the, in, uh, in uh, the band in Banshee, um, yeah, I guess it was just a coincidence. But it was, you know, at the same time, I'm totally in love with Irish stuff. And we had just been to Ireland yeah. and all the Celtic imagery and all that stuff that was on the Strangeling book was all kind of that artistic aesthetic obsession um so i'm sure that added into it okay one thing i'm really wanting to know is uh, where do you think all our favorite characters would be today 20 years later 20 years later uh i think fee is probably running a paranormal investigation agency um <laughs> i think jack married his uh his girlfriend from angel and they have based on Patrick, at least three children, and she's still in room. Uh, guessing Molly got back to, well, assuming assuming Lee won the argument and uh, and dad didn't come back to life, I think Molly is probably uh, a judge on The Voice. Uh, <laughs> that, would be, that would be my guess. And Ned and Irene are living on a houseboat somewhere, completely retired and drinking a lot of wine. That would be my guess. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, wow. And my last question is, you've worked on a lot of different shows throughout the years. Which project do you think has been your favorite? Wow. Um, well, I've been, I've been super lucky to work on the things that I worked on. Um, you know, I, I mean, Rugrats was its own kind of special pleasure and The Collector is a show that I created from scratch. I would say, you know, So Weird is, is certainly in that, in that top three and is different in the fact that I've never been so deeply immersed in somebody else's reality um, to the point where when we left the show, I thought, I can't do that again. I can't, I, I have, to, you know, I mean, I, the, all this comes from the little kid in me, right? Who was seven years old and is writing these stories and, and living in this fantasy world um, so that it isn't, it isn't really a problem where the ideas come from because that's where I live and I'm just writing down what's happening in my neighborhood. And, uh, but I was deeply ensconced in that family and Molly's journey and, and how that was all going to work out. And um, so I think from that perspective, it's certainly one of my, uh, my favorites on an emotional level. I, I've never been as emotionally involved with a show as I was with So Weird. Yeah. And the songs were a big part of that because the songs really were, were me communicating in that way on a different level. Yeah, I definitely understand that. The songs still make me cry today, so. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Uh, there is one question here as well from Jimmy, who is another podcaster who can't be here tonight. Uh, his question is, uh, how were you introduced to Anne-Marie Monte's music and sound? Uh, the music on this show is a huge highlight of of the storyline. It's really a shame that an official soundtrack was never released. I heard that you and Anne Marie had to correspond for writing of the music of the show. Uh, so was was that process like? 
Uh, well, we, um, the first song, uh, there was a, a, I've forgotten his name, and I, he's, a, he's a really lovely musician, wrote the, the music for, um, for uh, uh, More Like a River, and then the prop man and I went down in the basement with his guitar and wrote the Star Dot Star jingle. I think that was the second thing we wrote. And, um, and then mm. Lee went to, to clubs in Los Angeles and saw Anne-Marie playing, she has a band and now, she's in Spain. She writes me periodically. She's in Spain now, living in Spain. And um, he heard her and went over to her and said, hey, how would you like to write songs for a TV show? And she was like, yeah, right. Um, and sent me her music. And I would, you know, she obviously had the Irish aesthetic, which was quite important to me and, and really came to fruition on the rock. You know, when I sent her, uh, I don't think I, I don't, there, I don't think I had the ability to translate the words into Irish. She did that at the end. I, I knew I wanted them in Irish. Un Ilan Shema Heron Fane, all that was her translating because um, she speaks Gaelic. Um, and he sent me, a, I think he just sent me a demo tape or something like that. And then uh, I'm not sure what the first song was, probably uh, probably In the Darkness. And she would write them on guitar. Uh, sometimes she'd video herself or she'd just send me a tape and I would listen to them. Um, this was before you could send songs around any other way, like we'd have to mail them back and forth. And um, and I would, you know, uh, unless it was perfect, I would give her some direction about what I was looking for in particular or the phrasing of the stuff. But very often the phrasing of her stuff was great. You know, uh, the rock was unchanged. In the darkness was unchanged. Um, I think the only song that I ended up that didn't work because it was such a different style from what she was doing was origami. Um, and Jeff and, and Mark ended up rewriting that music. Um, and uh, and uh, she also she also did um, new math. She did uh, love is broken. Um, that's the only one I ever played on. I played some chords at the beginning of it, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was lovely. I mean, she's a great person, and we really got along really well. But we did it all long distance. I I finally met her, but I think I only met her afterwards. Cool. All right, and so now we're gonna go to the questions that we got from other fans. Heading it over to Zach. Okay, this is coming from. Temple of Asula, I hope I'm saying that right, on Twitter. After all of these years, did you ever think the series would have the following that it has? Uh, well, you never know, right? But I think I think if you hit people at a certain, you know, there's certain times of your life to hit people. And, uh, and I think for people of a certain age, kids of a certain age, it was a very powerful series. And, and you know, kids that have had tragedy in their life, it was also very powerful for them. Um, so I, I had a tiny bit of sense of that, but you know, we had a character on a wireless laptop in a barn in 1998, like we were so far ahead of the ability of an audience to really respond. It was unbelievable that Disney channel had a, an online department, like that was putting up a website and it was interactive and we were doing a blog and like that stuff sounds, you know nothing now but at the time it was like what what are you doing and um so it was a, it only had an indication right that, that people were reacting to it in that way but i don't think a month goes by that somebody doesn't still contact me now 
and on Twitter or whatever and and thank me or or ask me a question or whatever. And and for a while it was obviously hot and heavy when they were printing up the I talk to John Cooksey, uh, I mean old John Cooksey t-shirts or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I can't have another conversation with you. <laughs> So it's uh, it's uh, it's great. It's 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 wonderful that it has that life and that it was there for so many people at a certain important time, right? Um, as a message of saying, you know, the, the the motto of the show is very simple. The the for me, it was life is messy, stick together, and that's really what I wanted to communicate. And uh, I think uh, a, a lot of that. To get that message at 13, you know, when you're fees age or, or around in there is super important because then life can just be messy and it's okay, right? And you only have to do one thing, which is stick together. These next set of questions <laughs> are from Masea on YouTube. She would like to know, how did you choose the song to use for the theme song? And what are your thoughts on the impact that the theme song came to be? Uh, well, the song uh, In the Darkness I wrote because it was about Molly's uh, drinking and her sobriety. Um, it was about her getting sober. And we had that one and it was kind of upbeat, if dark, but you know, had some pace to it. And it was Lee Gaither who said, you know, we should just make this a theme song because they had something or we were trying to compose something, or I don't remember what. And he was like, screw that, let's just use this. So we we recorded a different version that I think was 30 seconds long or something and then cut the title sequence to that. So um, then all of a sudden it was our theme song that was different. And then I, I think after the fact, I don't remember when I wrote it, if I was thinking so much about the dual layers of it in terms of being a prophecy, because I'm not sure I was, I was really aware yet that Molly was prophetic and that she had visions of the future, but then it took on that other significance of, of kind of being a prediction of the end of the series basically. So it, it became what I was driving towards. Awesome. She would also like to know, what was it like to work on the song Rebecca? She knows that the song is very sad and even more if you had lost a friend before. She would cry thinking yeah. about the song and wondered if you had a similar situation related to the song. Uh, it's impossible for me to sing. My life is like a turnstile. So many people passing through without choking up. And uh, I think you know, I think pretty much everybody feels like they're all alone and never part of the big group, right? It's it's impossible. We can't all be the people outside the group. And yet that's pretty universal feeling. And I, it's been a struggle all of my life to not feel like I'm the one who's alone and never going to be part of anything. And um, so there's a lot of loneliness in Rebecca that I think I identified with. And Molly, it was funny when I, when Molly read the lyrics, you know, uh, that she was on the beach at 13 and, you know, burnt on the, you know, burnt on the outside and raw in the middle. And she said, that was me at 13 years old. And if you know her history with her father, you know that there's a lot there. Um, uh, but it really exposed, um, Molly's sadness, and I, you know, I, I, I would say that it probably makes me sad, not so much for the friends who left me, but for the friends I pushed away. And I've been pretty lucky later in life to like to get a lot of those friends back. Um, 
So, you know, don't give up on that. It is possible to get your Rebecca's back, if, especially now, right? And it is, it's a beautiful thing. I, I think I, 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 uh, I, I, uh, I recently fell in love with one of them, so. Aww. That's nice. That's nice. Here. I just wanted to butt in before we get to the next question. I know, I, I think Rebecca is probably like the fan favorite of the whole show because it's such a, a topic that almost everybody can relate to. And when we did the podcast episode for that episode, we got so many comments of people sharing their stories of how oh. they related and how suddenly a friend just vanished and how they wished they could communicate. Some of them did later in life, some of them didn't. Yeah. Yeah, that was that episode. Um, again, you know, I, that's it's that episode is probably the primary reason that I will always refer back to Lee and say he was so helpful in, in forming the show. I think I had I don't remember if I started with the song or with the the episode idea, but I had the idea that Fee meets a, a girl her age who is you know a thousand years old or something. That was the idea, and that. You know, as with a vampire, you know, you you have to move away all the time because you never get older, right? And and um, and it was Lee who said, "Make her Molly's friend." So that was that's where that came from, and um, mm. and I think that that then made the song obvious at that point because it was Molly singing about somebody you know that she had lost at a crucial age, um, and is still heartbroken about it. Whatever she was, 40 something years old, 30 some years later, still heartbroken about losing that friend at that crucial point. And that Molly, uh, you know, that, that Fee gets in the middle and raises that hope, right? That she can reconnect with her and, and how painful that is for Molly. Uh, right before she, you know, you realize at the end of the episode that she's so sad singing the song because she was just in the house. Um, I didn't know that was a fan favorite, but it, it is certainly one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, I think it's the favorite yeah. episode of everybody here. Wow. Yeah, and that, that and that song has had such an impact. And that was, uh, if I recall correctly, that was Anne Marie's first draft. Um, wow. I don't. I don't think we changed the music at all. It's my favorite. It makes me cry almost every time I listen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's that line that Molly says, like to Jack, like, "What's wrong with me?" You know, like, "Why does everyone yeah. like, leaving?" I remember watching that episode with uh, my best friend at the first time she was watching the entire series in one uh, go and uh, I was warning her beforehand this next episode is really sad and it has a song that is probably the saddest song you will ever hear and she <laughs> thought I was completely uh, making it up but uh, yeah after that episode she's like yeah you weren't kidding were you? <laughs> Well, if I've written the saddest episode of television ever, I'm very pleased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I could talk about Rebecca forever, but we got to move on. <laughs> yeah. um, so, okay. We have a question from Andrea on Facebook, uh, and she is one of your biggest fans or the show's biggest fans. She <laughs> says, hi, John. Thank you for playing such a huge part in the creation of what is still my favorite series ever. One aspect of this show that fascinates me most is the spiritual bond between Rick and his family, which is re represented by the Celtic knot heirloom rings. What inspired the choice of rings, and do you have any idea where they are now? Uh, well, I had a, I was wearing a Celtic knot earring that we got in Ireland uh, when Mary was four at the time. 
And we had a, a young assistant art director with red hair whose name escapes me, um, who I think was Irish. Um, he was the one that was sitting there when I got this tape. <laughs> Probably who wanted, said, we have this girl down here that we'd really like to put in the episode Siren, but she has to use her own song. And I'd already written um, questions. And so I played this tape with him sitting there, this young kid. He was only like 17 or something, super young. And, um, and that song was Genie in a Bottle with Christina Aguilera. And uh, <laughs> we got to the end and it was like, yeah, she's pretty good. And I said, and I called him back and said, nah, I don't know, I want to use my own song. So that was the worst decision <laughs> I've ever made in my entire career. Um, no, no offense to Jewel State, but it was like, yeah, I should have always say yes, right? And and uh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he was he loved the Celtic theme. He was the one that designed the, I think, the, the Celtic uh, cover of Strangeling. And the Strangeling book I have in storage. Somebody gave me that. Um, the rings, I'm it's possible I have them. Some of that stuff got saved. Um, but the idea that you know, again, that it, it binds. There were there were more than one. I think did Molly have the other one? I can't yes. remember. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a there was a uh, uh, we actually showed the connection between them at one point. There was a visual effect right about the connection between the two rings. So yeah, it was a, just a symbol of the of the bond between the witches and the line. Okay, and um, so this next question, we got an email from someone named L, and they said, the first episode I ever saw of So Weird was Mutiny when I was eight or nine years old, and I remember it so clearly, the last shot of the driftwood falling to the bottom of the ocean. I was completely in awe of the show. I used to sneak out of my bedroom at midnight or later to catch it on TV. I wish I could find a way to describe how impactful and moving I found the lyrics of The Rock or the shot in season two, episode one of Jack standing outside of Fee's bedroom, listening to Molly teach Fee how to play Rick's theme on the guitar. Mm -hmm. I think So Weird was the first time that those big themes of loss and grief and sacrifice, family, forgiveness, and faith felt fully accessible to me as a child. And it is still the lens through which I explore these ideas in my adult life. Moreover, I still love stories about fierce, empathetic girls on the hunt for the truth. Fee was my first love in that regard. For the last year or so, I've been slugging through my first foray, foray into writing after a lifetime of dreaming about it, and she was my compass. For all of this, I owe the entire cast and crew a debt of gratitude. Obviously, technology was a huge part of the show, and it has changed significantly, yet I can't imagine anything related to So Weird without Fee's website and then she had asked about a reboot which uh we'll get to later because most of our questions are about reboots huh? <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well the, the technology part again you know it was it was great it was i think you know i was i was a fairly early adopter i was on CompuServe and i don't know whatever long before anybody else and uh but the idea that we could have Fee's website be in reality was like from the beginning was a necessity. Like you had to be able to go online and see Fee's website and, and it had to be at least somewhat um, uh, usable. And, and then by the second season, we were able to start to have the uh, the, uh, the Will of the Wisp or whoever it was, was writing the blog entries that sort of 
he would lead you into town and then there was commentary and there was a whole storyline and again that was lee gaither was was like we should you know what we should do we should have an online story to go with the on-air story and that seems you know 20 years later you have lost doing the actual you know highly funded wonderful version of that but um lee was way ahead of those kind of ideas and fee's laptop was there from the beginning that was that wasn't something i invented so uh this one comes from uh kaylin on instagram i would like to let you know that the show's music is still appreciated and loved and i still listen to the songs every day i guess there's no question to it <laughs> but letting you know i listen to them too sometimes i love those songs yeah that was one of those less a question more comment yeah. things you get in faqs all right this is from jeff on twitter one thing i always wanted to know was if the molly phillips tour bus was really an eagle and if so what model it was and what it actually looked like behind the front lounge area that we always saw on the show this is in parentheticals here. I always got a kick out of the obvious set they built to make the rear part of the bus appear as if it was so big that it had a hallway with multiple bedrooms. <laughs> it was very obviously unrealistic, but amusing nevertheless. But I always wanted to know about the actual bus and how it was set up and even where they got it, if they had more than one that they used for the show. No, we just had the one. And I, I think, I'm trying to think. It had, uh, it might, I think it had something a bit in the entrance because we did film out the front periodically, like in the song with that boy band. Um, I can't remember which one that was, um, where she's talking about the Muppets, the Moffats. And uh, so I think it might have had the table area real and then the rest of the bus not. But you're right, like it was the, it was the magical fourth dimension bus where you get to the back of the bus and it's like 85 <laughs> feet wide. Yeah. For sure. But no, the bus was real and we drove it all over. Right, nice. This next sassy question comes from a music lover KB on YouTube. What do you think is the real reason Disney Channel continues to ignore so weird's existence? <laughs> I have no idea. They, uh, you know, they own everything. It's a, There's an issue now, actually, uh, that um, uh, Netflix, the reason Netflix and, and Amazon are building out their own libraries and making Stranger Things is that all of the programming like that is all owned by either Nickelodeon or So Weird. And they don't sell it. They don't license it. So especially now. And um, so that, you know, all those channels are now starting from scratch on making and, and uh, you know, um, uh, the, the producer on Stranger Things obviously was our director on the pilot of, uh, of So Weird. So it's kind of an acknowledged link between the two shows. Um, so uh, that's the main reason is that, you know, Disney, uh, it'll be interesting to see if Disney brings the show out when they have their own cable network to fill up, like that's the streaming network, that, we'll see if that happens. But um, I just don't think it's ever fit their, um, uh, you know, who they, their brand in some ways. And, um, and uh, you know, as for the music, I think they just have so much money, they just don't care. You know, they could put the songs on iTunes, but what would they get? You know, 0.01 microcent per song. And I think it's just not worth the trouble to them. Um, and now it's been so long that I don't, I don't think, I don't know how aware they are of the, you know, the lingering fan base or what that means to them. But they're, you know, I mean, they're busy with Star Wars and Marvel, like they have other fish to fry. Uh, but I, you know, nonetheless, I still give out Gary Marsh's email address every now and then. 
Yeah, he gave it to me once. I tried contacting him, but never got an answer. He's still there. (laughs) He's still there somewhere at Disney. And uh, so I wonder, you know, I wonder if they'll finally, when they have a streaming service and, you know, they have a lot of, uh, obviously the amount of stuff they have will be what attracts people to uh, to the service somewhat. I wonder if they'll bring so weird out, but I have no idea. It's something we've talked about a lot and we're all hoping that it ends up on Disney plus because if it doesn't, I'm not subscribing, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, we, are, we are all holding our breaths about whether or not so weird ends up on the streaming platform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next question from princess Fernandez on Facebook. What were some of the musical influences that went into coming up with the sound for PKB and Molly's music? Uh, well, in my mind, they were always kind of the Eagles, sort of. Um, although the uh, the songs, that stuff wasn't composed by Anne-Marie. And Anne-Marie obviously tended towards, um, you know, folk rock kind of stuff. And th- that's when it worked the best. You know, the, 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 the kind of grandiose, uh, in a good way, um, sort of soaring rock elements of... of um, of uh of love is broken were added by jeff um and the but the um the pkb stuff was done by the composer because that was part of the score because we never really went down the road fully of developing that sound and that composer was just kind of a just kind of a more of a you know punky hard rock kind of sound and I, i we never really we never had the time really fully to develop that sound uh, it was more about what the actors could perform and um, and something that gave it a distinct sound so that you were really looking back on that, that it was quite different that Molly had kind of gone her own way and, um, you know, and, and become more distinct, you know, years, because it's a decade later and she was writing songs mm-hmm. and some of them she had performed with her husband. Um, so you got the idea that like the Eagles, it really depended on the composer, the, uh, the uh, the Kane version of that was much more of a hard rock guy. Uh, you know, I was I was always I'm much more I'm not so much a Glenn Fry fan as I am a, a, um, um, the other guy whose name I should remember but can't um, the songwriter. And uh, so I think it was it was kind of that we wanted to represent that he was a different influence musical influence on them that they were that Molly was kind of the sensitive you know lyricist and all that. Awesome. So we have basically. Uh, many questions from people asking about reboots of some sort, like um, how would you imagine a reboot or would you ever like write out the original season three in a novel? Uh, Well, Disney owns all the rights. so That's not one of my options to write it out in a novel unless they want to someday novelize all that. But um, I suppose that's the Marvel way, right? That would be the Spider-Verse version. Um, (laughs) And we could do all with pigs. You know, I, it, it would be it would be different. Um, you know, social media would be something of a change, but I, I think, um, you know, really with a reboot, it, the question is why. You know, why is it better than the original? And I, I think that question doesn't always get answered well. Um, you know, that, that has to have a reason to exist on its own. So for me to do any kind of a reboot, if they were ever to ask me, which I don't anticipate. Um, it would be a question of, well, what is different now than it was in 1998 when we were doing that, you know, and, and a lot of things obviously are different and the world is, is uh, you know, upsetting in new and different ways and families are fractured and screen time is a thing and, you know, there's uh, politics or whatever and there's 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, and uh, so it would be, it wouldn't be as white a show for sure. It would be much more diverse than, than we had the opportunity to be at the time. Um, Vancouver didn't have a lot of diverse actors. Um, and the, the central family itself obviously was white and Irish. Um, so we did what we could, but there weren't a lot of choices, casting choices at the time. Um, uh, and I would certainly, I'm much more aware of that now. Uh, I, you know, I'm pleased to look back and, and see that it was a, you know, a female driven show, um, with a lot of women who are very, very strong in a kind of a third wave feminism way. And that's, that's cool. Um, but yeah, that would be the central question would be why, you know, what, uh, you know, what is, is, is there, has that message changed in some way, you know, that life is messy, stick together and, and that, uh, you know, that a hero is somebody who sacrifices to do good. Um, and for me, those are sort of timeless concepts. So that, that doesn't seem very dated to me at this point, other than the visual effects and, you know, obvious things like that. Okay. That may okay. not be a very satisfying answer, but, <laughs> but I yeah, don't, uh, yeah. you know, whether, whether it'll, would have, you know, if Disney puts it on, you know, Disney plus or the streaming channel and sudden, mm -hmm. suddenly it's got a, an audience of 7 million, then I'm sure you'll <laughs> see something new for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of reboot questions are be because a lot of older shows are getting rebooted now and because of how season three ideas were dropped. So some people are like, what happened to those aliens or yeah, yeah. what happened that to That was going to pay back. The, yeah, we had that whole thing with the Upa and the aliens mm -hmm. communicating with her and um, the song about the homeless guy, uh, the, the, the episode about the homeless guy. Um, um, yeah, that was a whole thread that I had planned out over the course of whatever it was, 60 episodes or something like that, that they were eventually going to come and say that, that the, uh, you know, that the evil is everywhere and that there are fees on, you know, every planet with sentient life has a fee and, uh, and a Rick, and they're all kind of trying to get to the same place. Interesting. So, uh, does anyone else have any questions or anything else to say? Those are basically all the, the questions that we got. You're putting us all on the spot there, Kathy. Uh. <laughs> well, I just want to say, as I say to everybody who we've talked to on the show, that it's remarkable how every <laughs> single person we've talked to related to the show has such fond memories of it. And the show really does stand the test of time. So thank you so much for your hard work on it. Well, it was a, it was a, you know, I, the, the actors were already there. It was a great family. Um, yeah, it was a beautiful experience, and I think that stuff does manifest itself on screen. So I, I, I was very lucky. And then I always uh, kind of end off with two questions of if the show were to get rebooted or some prequel or something, and they were to ask you to come as a writer, would you come back? Oh, absolutely. Again, I'm I'm not anticipating it, but I certainly yeah. <laughs> would. And it would be it would be uh, it w I think a prequel could be something that would definitely be an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. to go back and find Molly at 13 and, you know, do Rebecca part two and all that. I think that would be really fun. Mm -hmm. The young Molly Phillips Chronicles. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think she, I think the reason that she was so freaked out was that she was very much like Fee when she was that age and probably had some of the same interests. And what does she do? She meets a guy and, and he's about to be a paranormal investigator like this, you know? Yeah. One thing I would love to see is cool with uh, Molly and Rick and their life. Yeah, yeah. There's and a whole Rick's investigations. Mm. Well, the beauty of that would be to do would be to see Phillips Cane Band when they were famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know. Yeah. 
when the kids were little and what the other, you know, who, who the people of that life were and who the kids were and who else had kids. And yeah. And um, my last question is, uh, you kind of already answered how um, your thoughts about how there's so many fans to this day. Um, but do you have anything to say to those fans now? Uh, well, only that I, you know, it's, you don't often get the chance to have that kind of impact on an audience. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, an audience, it's not an audience, it's a bunch of people, right? And, and I think that the whole purpose of writing is to bind a tribe together. You know, I think, I think TVs are just, uh, you know, the flickering light of the TV is just the flickering light of the campfire and it's the tribe sitting around the campfire and dealing with whatever crap has happened today and who got stepped on by the mastodon during the hunt and you know the storyteller giving that some kind of meaning and you know does it matter exactly what that meaning is not really you know it could be any kind of story about it but it still has to convey a basic message about what the meaning is of hardship and grief and loss and joy and you know and bounty and good luck and bad luck and and um because life is often just a bunch of stuff that happens, you know, and it's too easy to take the death of somebody you love and give that some kind of meaning that it doesn't have about you or things or the, or the universe. And, uh, and storytellers, I think, are the people that, that make all that fit together, you know, that give it a, yeah. a purpose. And, uh, and uh, I think, so we did that, you know, it, it, it did bind things together in, in a kind of a meaningful way, you know, certainly for me. Um, so I'm just, uh, you know, I'm grateful that I was able to to reach people at a at a particular time, and and that it still apparently continues to reach people. That's just like there's no mm -hmm. there's no there's nothing better for a writer. Yeah, as a writer, I definitely agree. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a high calling if you take it that way, or it's just a meaningless bunch of drivel if you don't. <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. All right. Any last? All right. Uh, well, other than thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, and I'm hopefully this episode was not derailed too much by our technical difficulties. <laughs> oh, it didn't bother me at this end. It's great. All right, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you guys. It's and, like uh, really great honor to have you on our episode talking about you know what we all love. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for the memories and and for connecting again. Happy 20th, 20th anniversary. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true.